Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. We're going to begin studying in verses 1 through 11 tonight. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now there's some more things that I want to pull out from this section that we studied last week uh, before we move on to the next verses. We ended last study with looking at the importance of reading and knowing all of God's Word, since it's our only offensive weapon against Satan, and it, how it was sufficient for Jesus in His temptations. What I want to do tonight, though, is look more closely at the three passages that Jesus quoted and what He and the words themselves were actually saying. So, we kind of skipped over that part in our study of dealing with the kenosis. By the way, that's the emptying of himself. We dealt with that last week. This week, I want to look specifically at the passages that Jesus quoted from and see what they really were saying, because you're going to find that they speak to some problems in the church today. The attack of Satan. By the way, has, has Satan's strategies changed any? No. Partially because they work real good. And second of all, since he doesn't change his strategies, if the strategies Jesus used were, was powerful enough to defeat him, they'll be helpful for us today. But we need to know why he quoted these passages. What was really being said in those? So let's take a look at the first one uh, and where Jesus responds and says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus here is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. So go back to Deuteronomy chapter 8. And look at verses 1 through 5. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, we're going to look at verses 1 through 5 real quickly, and we'll see the context of where Jesus is quoting from. God speaking to the nation of Israel right before they go back into the, prom or into the promised land after wandering for 40 years. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give your fathers, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. And He humbled you, and He let you hunger, and He fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord he then goes on and says, Your clothing didn't wear out on you, and your foot didn't swell these forty years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. It's important for us to understand the context of where Jesus is quoting from, because Jesus would never quote something out of context. So understanding the context will help us understand what Jesus is saying in response to Satan. Satan comes and says, Hey, why don't you, if you really are the Son of God, 
Why don't you take and turn these stones into loaves of bread? I know you're hungry. Why don't you just use your power and just do something for yourself? That's important. Do you remember? If you, we don't have time to go into it, but if you look at this passage, God led them into the wilderness. That's going to be important later on. Who, who and how did they follow the Lord when they wandered in the wilderness? Pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. Wherever he moved, they moved. So God was the one that orchestrated and led them into the wilderness for those 40 years. And God said, I put you in that situation where there was no food and no water for some reasons. One was to humble you, remind you of your dependence. Another one was to test you to see what was in your heart, whether you keep my commandments or not. And thirdly, is to teach you that man doesn't live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So I'm going to say something to you. I'm going to give you some quotes that I wrote in my notes. But then, hey, I like that. I'll give you some quotes that I wrote in my notes. And then we're going to back it up with Scripture. What Jesus was saying to them is this. Real life is from God. Real life is spiritual life. Real life doesn't worry about this life. And real life is living for the next life. I'm going to say those to you again, and you're going to see how they tie into where we're going. Real life is from God. Real life is spiritual life. Real life doesn't worry about this life, and real life is living for the next life. You see, Satan was saying, why don't you live for the now? Instead of submitting yourself to the reason why God's led you into the wilderness, Jesus, instead of humbling yourself, Instead of responding appropriately to the test to show that you are the Son of God and the coming Messiah, the sinless Savior of the world, instead of listening to the voice of God, the three reasons why God led them into the wilderness and led Jesus into the wilderness, why don't you act on your own and why don't you live for now? Jesus said, you know what? Man doesn't live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of of God. In other words, Jesus was saying to Satan, you're focused on this life. It's not about this life. It's about a deeper purpose that God has in mind. Real life is from God. Real life is spiritual life. And real life doesn't worry about this life. And real life is living for the next life. Go with me to John chapter 5. And we're going to see a bunch of places where Jesus himself explains this in much more detail. In John chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. John chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus said, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes in Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Again, Jesus said real life is from God. Real life is spiritual life. Real life doesn't worry about this life. And real life is living for the next. You're going to see that as we look at the scriptures. I heard a story years ago about this rich man who had lived his whole life for himself. And he had a gold Cadillac. And he asked that when he was buried, that he be buried in his gold Cadillac. And so when the day came that he had his funeral and his burial, they had the big crane and the backhoes had dug the hole and they lowered him as he was sitting behind the wheel of his gold Cadillac into the ground and someone was overheard saying, now that's living. But uh, um, 
Go to John chapter 6. Look at verse 25 and following. In John chapter 6, verse 25, but we've already seen that pass from death to life through faith in Jesus Christ. John chapter 6, verses 25 through 40. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw signs, because, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He just fed the 5,000. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. We saw that all last week. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Again, keep this in mind. Jesus goes a little bit more detail now about this eternal life. He said the crowds came and they followed him. And he said, let me just tell you why you're here. You're not here because of the signs. You're here because you had your belly filled in the last town. And you want me to take care of blessing you in this life. He says, let me just tell you, don't work for food that doesn't really take care of you. Work for the, the food that God gives that leads to eternal life. And they said, well, what are the works of God that we have to do? He said, here's the work of God. Believe in him who he has sent. And then he went on after they said, well, Moses gave us manna in the wilderness. And he said, it wasn't Moses. It was my father. And actually, he's sending you the true bread from heaven. And I am the bread from heaven. Keep in mind, Satan comes to Jesus and says, look, why don't you just focus on right now? You're hungry. You've got the ability. You've got the power. Turn these stones into bread. Jesus said, you don't understand. There is a bigger thing going on right now than whether or not I'm hungry. There's a bigger issue happening right now. And I'm here because of the Father's orchestration. God's putting me in this situation, and He has a greater purpose in mind. And I'm not going to be distracted by this life and the cares of this life and miss out on God's greater purpose. Man doesn't live by bread alone. Man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Let me say to you, how many of you have lost sight of God's greater purpose in your life because you've been too worried about the car? Or the fridge. We get distracted by the things in this life and we forget that God has already said to us in Matthew chapter 6 that we're not to worry about that stuff. God cares about the birds. He cares about the lilies of the field. Doesn't he care about us more? The pagans, those who don't know God are the ones who worry about all that stuff in this life. Real life is from God. Real life is spiritual life. Real life doesn't worry about this life and real life is living 
for the next life. I just quoted Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 33. I'm not going to talk about that one for the sake of time. Go with me to Luke chapter 12. In Matthew 6, verses 19 through 33, Jesus even goes on and says, Don't, don't store up treasure in heaven. I'm sorry, don't store up treasure on the earth, but store it up in heaven. Don't be living for this life. Don't feel more comfortable the bigger your bank account is. By the way, when you really understand that real life is from God, and when you really understand that real life is spiritual life, and when you really understand that real life doesn't worry about this life, you're going to be someone that's generous. When you understand that real life is living for the next life, you're going to be willing to share, you're going to be willing to give, you're not going to be worried about whether or not anybody's done you wrong, because you're focused on real life. We've been distracted by, in the church for too many years with stuff that's not real life. Luke chapter 12, look at verses 13 through 34. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many, many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And all the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. We have a tendency sometimes to be distracted by the world and all the latest with the Kardashians and all this kind of stuff. And it'll take your eyes off what real life is. Folks, don't miss this. The psalmist in Psalm 73, Asaph, said this. He said that when he looked at the wicked and how their bodies are fat and sleek and they seem to have no worries or pangs, he said, my feet almost slipped. I, I envied them, and I almost lost sight of what was important until I remembered their end. As beautiful and wonderful as their lives may be or even appear to be, don't lose this sight. Or don't lose sight of this. Those who are outside of Christ are one breath from hell every second of their life. We look at their yachts and their, their cars and their vacations and we think, oh, I wish I could have that. No, you don't want to be in their place. They are one heartbeat away from hell every second of their life because they don't know Jesus. Real life is from God. Real life is spiritual life. Real life doesn't worry about this life and real life lives for the next life. Go to John chapter 6. Look at verses 47 through 69. John chapter 6, verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Yeah, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, 
and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him, as the living Father sent me. And I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who were who, were, who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You see, Satan was wanting to get Jesus to lose sight of the eternal purpose and focus on the now. And Jesus said, to focus on the now would take me out of the Father's plan, disqualify me from the Father's plan, because I would be living for myself and not fully surrendered to him as I'm supposed to be. Man shall not live by bread alone. Yeah, I'm hungry. But you know what? I'll get hungry again probably tomorrow. You solving or me solving this problem isn't going to fix the real issue. It's actually going to do damage. Folks, how many of you think that man lives by God fixing whatever the latest problem is you have? You know, have you heard me say before, as soon as you get... New tires on the car, the washing machine breaks. There's always going to be something. Man does not live by having the washing machine fixed. Man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Have you got it yet? Real life is from God. Real life is spiritual life. Real life doesn't care. It doesn't worry about this life. And real life lives for the next life. By the way, isn't that cool? That was all just from one place that Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Oh, but wait. When we get to the second one, it's even bigger. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 4. As you know, Satan takes him to the pinnacle of the temple and says, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down for it's written. And then Satan quotes from Psalm 91. We'll come back to that in a little bit. And Jesus says in verse 7, Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, in order to understand this, we need to know where Jesus was quoting from. So go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and look at verse 16. Jesus here quotes to Satan from Deuteronomy chapter 6, but verse 16 It says in Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Now, in order for us to understand why Jesus is quoting from here, what have we got to do now? We're going to go find out when they tested him at Massa. What is that? Go with me now to Exodus chapter 17. 
Back in Exodus chapter 17, we'll get a deeper understanding of what Jesus is saying here if we understand why he referenced Massa. Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. It says, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. Remember, he's the one leading them. When he moved, they moved. If his pillar of fire cloud didn't move, they didn't move. So they moved on according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Again, who led them to Rephidim? Did God know there'd be no water? All right, keep that in mind. There was no water for them to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Moses And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of that place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? God leads them to this place where there's no water. He has a reason and a purpose, and as we know, it's so that He would demonstrate His power by providing water for them from the rock. Hopefully you understand that this is also a prefiguring of Jesus, because it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that they all drank from the same spiritual rock in the wilderness, which is Christ. It's a picture of the fact that in order for the Holy Spirit to be given, which is the whole Bible tells us in John chapter uh, uh, 7, verses 37 and following, Jesus stood at the great day of the feast and said, If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and out of him will flow rivers of living water. By this he meant the Holy Spirit, which those who believed in him were later to receive. The Holy Spirit represents, uh, sorry, the water represents the Holy Spirit, the scripture says. The rock represents Christ, the scripture says. And God was showing an amazing picture that the rock was going to have to be struck in order for the Holy Spirit in salvation to be given. Oh, later on, since the rock had already been struck at a previous time, when they were thirsty again and they came to a similar situation, what did God tell Moses to do when it came to the rock? Speak to the rock. Why? Because once the rock has been struck, he's only need to be struck once. Jesus has already been crucified once for all. How do we get salvation now? By having him be crucified again or by well, I think Jesus said it this way. Will not the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Of course, Moses blew the picture up because he got mad and struck the rock and God in his mercy provided water. But God then said to Moses, you kind of blew what I was trying to do there and you're not going to go into the promised land because of it. But what happens, though, is the people actually are testing God. Well, how are they testing God? They were saying, is God among us or not? How did they get to Rephidim? They followed how? Who? What? The miraculous pillar of fire or the pillar of cloud, the Shekinah glory of God. Is God among us or not? Well, I'll tell you what. Yeah, we've seen the pillar of fire. Yeah, we've seen the pillar of cloud. But unless he does what I want him to do right now, I'm not going to believe. They were testing God by their determining what God had to do to prove himself to them. 
That's important. Stick with me. You see, God led them into that place. And he does this. Why does he lead us in situations like this? Like I told you, to remind us of our dependence on him, to show us our hearts and to teach us how to follow him. He has never dropped them. Had he? Remember in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 4, your feet never swelled, your clothing never wore out on you. He never dropped them. He always provided for them. He even had shown his mighty power to them over and over. But they were testing God by saying, is the Lord among us or not? God can, and he does, test us. We should never test God. I'm going to clarify that in just a second. We should never test God to see if he will come through for us or not. Do not put God to the test by doing something on your own and then seeing if God will do a miracle for you or not. Because I'm going to show you in just a second. There are three places in Scripture that I could show you where God actually says he wants us to test him. So why would God say, I want you to test me if the Scripture says you shall not put the Lord your God to the test? When three times I'm going to show you tonight that God said, I want you to test me. How do they go together? Here's how. We can test God when he sets the parameters of the test according to his word. You should not determine the parameters of the test. Do you see, understand what I'm saying? You don't test God by saying, God, I'll believe if you do this. Or God, your word says, therefore, I expect you to respond this way. That's you putting God to the test. That's actually you setting the parameters of the test. And guess what? That's you making God dance for you. Is God among us or not? Let's see if he's going to show up. Don't do that. Folks, listen, Peter didn't step out of the boat until after Jesus said, come. It would have been Peter testing Jesus by saying, I'm going to step out of the boat. I'm going to step out of the boat in faith, God. It's not faith if God didn't say step out of the boat. Do you understand? People have said, well, those guys that flew those planes into the Twin Towers in New York, they did it in faith in their God. No, not according to the Bible definition. First off, their God's not a real God, so he hadn't told them to do it. Second of all, real faith isn't faith until you know what God has said, and then you put your faith in what God has said. You can't determine the test. We're going to go deep into this tonight because this, this wrong teaching in the church has been pervasive and we need to clarify it tonight. See, the key is that you should never put the Lord your God to a test. Again, Peter only stepped out of the boat after Jesus said, come. He said, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come. And he waited. Jesus said, come. That's when he stepped out of the boat. You should never put the Lord to the test to see if he will come through for you. Like I said, this makes God dance for you. Don't ever do this. But God does allow us to test him and to see his power to keep his word when he sets the test. Go with me to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, look at verses 6 through 12. God says to the nation of Israel, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. In other words, the only reason you still exist, Israel, because I made promises to your fathers and I don't ever change. From the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? In other words, where have we left? 
Why do we have to come back when we haven't left God? God says, let me show you how you can return. Will a man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions. You were cursed with a curse for your robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, and see if I won't open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need. I'll rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Here God says, I want you to test me. I've already said in my word that you're to bring the tithe into the storehouse. And by the way, that's how the God provided for the priests, the Levites. They got to live off of what people gave. By the way, when the people didn't give, their house wasn't getting taken care of and the Levites weren't getting taken care of. The cool thing is God still provides for his people even if people don't give. You know, I've had too many pastors worry about, well, if I do that, we may lose some givers and I have to get my paycheck. Do you really think the big givers in the church pay your paycheck? You've got your eyes on the wrong people. That's one thing, thank God, I learned a long, long time ago. If everybody gets mad at me and nobody gives any money to the church, I'm still going to eat. Because people are not my provision. God's my provision. But God here says, test me. and See if I won't do what I've already said I would do. See, it's okay to test God when he set the test. Remember the song, Jesus, Jesus, how I've trust, how I trust him, how I've proved him or and or. That word prove means I've tested him. Oh, I've tested him in the ways that he said to test him. He's made promises and I found him to be true to his word. You don't set the test. God sets the test. Go to first Kings chapter 18. First Kings chapter 18, look at verses 20 through 39. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. We know this story, the prophets of Baal. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people didn't answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, I even I, am only am left the prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it, and I'll prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put the, no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I'll call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, He is God. And all the people said, it's well spoken. This is a good, this is a good test. I'm good with this. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around an altar and they had, that they had made, and at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he's God. Either he's musing or he's relieving himself. He might be in the bathroom and he can't hear you right now, is what he said. I love that. Or he's on a journey somewhere. or Perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. 
Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that they had been thrown down. And Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and he cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. Now, before we go any further, some of you are probably saying, wait a minute, Jim. Isn't Elijah testing God? Isn't Elijah determining the test? Isn't Elijah saying, let's see who's God now? Isn't Elijah doing the same thing the nation of Israel did at Meribah? That's why we got to keep reading. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Do you see it? Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know you, that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Folks, Elijah would have been sinning if Elijah had determined what the test was going to be. But the scripture shows us that God had already told him exactly what to do. And he was doing it according to God's word. I'm not going to take the time to turn there, but in Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 13, God actually tells the king, hey, I'm giving you permission. Give me a test. Ask me for a sign. Make it anything you want. And the guy goes, oh, well, I'm not going to put God to a test. And God gets angry. And he says, oh, then I'll give you the sign I choose. And that's the famous prophecy about a virgin will give birth and bear a son. But God said, look, in this instance, I'm letting you pick it. But the guy goes, oh, no, God can set the test. You never set the test. You say, Jim, I would never do that. Oh, yeah, we do. I'm going to show you from Scripture the way we do. You know how? We have to go look at what Satan did. Go to Psalm 91. Satan, as you know, in that passage, after taking him to the pinnacle of the temple, he quoted from Scripture. He said, throw yourself down because it's written in, in, in Psalm 91. And he quotes from Psalm 91. Look at verses uh, 11 and 12. Satan quotes from Psalm 91, verse 11 and 12. For he'll command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. And on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. He quoted it word for word, didn't he? From the passage. In other words, Satan comes to Jesus and says, hey... You can do this. It's in the scripture. But Jesus said, no, that would be putting God to a test. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Well, we can understand then the full context of what's going on here. If you were to read Psalm 91, let's start in verse one. You're going to notice that this is actually a prophecy most likely tied to the future protection of Israel in the millennial kingdom. But take a look at Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. 
For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence, and he will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. I think this is all talking about the end of the tribulation period into the millennial kingdom. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague to come near you or near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I'll answer him. I'll be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Now, folks, if we're honest, this passage is full of truths about God's protection for those who trust in God. Correct? Isn't it full of promises of God's protection for those who trust in God? But as true as it is that God protects and provides for those who trust Him, does that mean we can jump off the pinnacle of the temple or step in front of buses? Or we don't ever need to go to the doctor? Because God's Word has said that He'll take care of us. And then we add to the Scriptures, that means I can... You fill in the blank. You understand what I'm saying? Uh, many people today are quoting Scripture left and right. And I, I was up in New England just recently preaching up there and we were at the beach and a lady was there who unfortunately does what I'm about to say don't do. And the clouds started to come and it looked like it was going to rain, even thundered a little bit. And everybody at the beach was like, oh, we're going to have to pack up. And she commanded the cloud to go away. Oh, by the way, it didn't go away. But her thing was, I have authority in Jesus Christ. I tell you, cloud, go away in Jesus' name. Hang on for a second, folks. Yes, the Bible says that all authority has been given to Jesus. He himself said it in Matthew chapter 28 after he defeated Satan, all authority had been given to him. We see in Hebrews chapter 2, as we saw last week, that all, everything's been subjected to Jesus. It's been put under his feet. But the verse goes on and says, yet at present we don't see everything in subjection to him. Is everything under Jesus' authority right now in the world? Yes. Is he exercising that full authority? No. He chooses when and when he doesn't for his own purposes. Do we have authority because of our relationship with Jesus? Yes. Hasn't Jesus taught us that if we ask anything, he'll do it? Oh, be careful. I tricked you there. Did he say that if we ask anything, he'll do it? He said if we ask anything according to to his will, we know that he hears us. And if we know that we, he hears us, we know that we have the things that we ask. Does the mountain say, I mean, sorry, does the scripture say that if we have enough faith, we can say to this mountain, be moved and to be cast into the depths of the sea. Doesn't the scripture say that? Yeah, but again, that's only powerful or possible if it's the father's purpose to have it move at that time. Paul prayed three times that a certain thing would be removed, but God said, no. Any teaching that takes truth from Scripture, but then extrapolates it to make you have more authority than God, 
is you are testing God. Oh, I know the doctor said I have cancer, Pastor, but I have faith that God is going to heal me. Did God say he was going to heal you? Oh, his, by his stripes we're healed. Oh, I don't have time to take you back through all of that, but if you look at the context of all those passages, it's talking about spiritual healing, not physical healing. I could show you in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 11, verses 32 and following, where the Hebrew writer says, what more shall I say about David and Samson and Jephthah and all these people who, got, women got their children back from dead dead. Some escaped the edge of the sword. Others uh, put foreign armies to fight. Stop the mouths of lions. That's the kind of preaching we love to hear. Others were tortured. Others were sawn in two. Others were put to death by the sword. In the same passage, it says some escaped the edge of the sword, some were put to death of the sword. And the Hebrew writer says all these were commended for their faith. Folks, we got to be careful. When we determine how God is going to respond, we're putting God to the test if he didn't say that he would do that. And many people today do like Satan and say, well, it says that he'll protect me. Therefore, I don't have to go to the doctor. He's going to protect me. You've added something to it. Folks, be careful. If you believe it so much that God has to believe it too, you're testing God. And it's amazing to us how many of us today have fallen prey to Satan's lie that he tried on Jesus, but Jesus said no. Um, would that work with me jumping off the temple? If I used my own authority and my own power, I could keep from being injured, yes, but... I would take myself out of the plan of the Father, out of the will of the Father. I would now be a sinner because I disobeyed the Father. Mankind would be damned, and I would have blown it. And on top of that, I'm not telling my Father what he has to do. He's telling me what I have to do. Anytime that you believe that you're going to tell God what he has to do, you're putting God to the test. Years ago when I was pastor here, there was a couple that... Uh, had that faith that God would always heal them. And I was teaching actually in this room right here, this area right over here. I was teaching a Sunday school class. I used to teach the gospel of John. My rules were if you were in another Sunday school class, you can't come to the pastor's class. My other rules also were this. The class was only for visitors and new believers who had just gotten saved to come. And I would teach the gospel of John. And I started in chapter 1. And when I got all through John I would start again in chapter one. And I always said, once I get through a whole lap, if you come in on starting on chapter four and you get all the way through John and you get back to chapter four, I'm kicking you out. You got to go to another class. I don't want people getting addicted to Jim Johnson. I was just teaching the gospel of John over and over. Well, one Sunday I walked in and I had a cold and I, I apologized to the class. I said, folks, because of this cold, I, uh, I think I'm, you're going to have a little trouble hearing me tonight. And this guy says out loud in front of all these new believers, well, if you had enough faith, you wouldn't have that cold. And I realized now I have to change my Sunday school lesson because I could see on the faces of all those new believers, what did he just say? And I then retaught what the scripture said about what faith really is. And it's only in what he said. And sometimes people get sick. Did God use Paul to heal people? But Paul also said, I left Trophimus sick at Miletus. Why didn't he just do a miracle? Well, maybe Trophimus didn't have enough faith. No, don't, don't go down that road. That's a lie from the enemy that has done more damage to so many people. Listen closely. After the class, they came up to me and they said, we still think you're wrong. 
I said, that's fine. But a year later, the husband gets cancer. But they weren't worried. They're just going to pray it away. Because by his stripes they were healed and this cancer wasn't going to take them. But as Ben continued on, it became evident that God's answer to the healing of the cancer was no. And to his credit and to their, their credit, they sat in my office and they said, Pastor, we've prayed for so many things in our lives. We've never prayed for anything more than we've prayed for this cancer to be gone. And it's obvious that God's answer is no and that you were right and we were wrong. Would you teach us how to die right? And for those that know that couple, that last year of his life, Everybody fell in love with him because he now fully trusted in God to do whatever God's going to do. And it was no longer about what he thought God had to do. He was a very arrogant man. A lot of people didn't even like him because he had God figured out and God had to dance for him. But when God humbled him and showed him that he had to dance for God, his theology got lined up right. Folks, many of you are mad at God because you believed he would and he didn't. You put God to the test. You sinned by even putting him to the test. Is he with me or not? Oh, he's with you. But that doesn't mean he's going to do what you want him to do. That's why Judas left. He started to realize he's not going to do what I want him to do. Now, let's go to the third one. Matthew chapter 4. Of course, Satan comes, says, all I can do is bow down to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus says, uh, it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Now, hopefully this doesn't need too much explanation. But I wrote in my notes, or does it? To worship God and to serve God, listen closely, are the exact same thing. Listen to what it says. You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Listen closely. Worshiping God and serving God are the exact same thing. We've separated them in our churches today. We see worship as, oh, and singing. And we see serving as working hard for God. Doing service for the Lord. Our energy, our effort. Let me tell you something. I'm going to show you from Scripture, but I need your help to do it. I'm going to show you from Scripture that worshiping God and serving God are the exact same thing. And if you want to study the Greek and the Hebrew, you'll find I'm right, that the words are interchangeable in the Hebrew. They're interchangeable in the Greek. And I'm going to have you help me to prove it. Because I've been reading from the ESV. Some of you have ESV. But others, you have other translations out there. So we're going to, we're going to do a quick little Bible study in the time we have left. Let's all go to Psalm 100, verse 2. Psalm 100, verse 2. I'm going to read it to you from the ESV, and then someone that has a different translation uh, that reads differently, I want you to read it for us out loud. Tell us what it is, and then read it for us out loud. Psalm 100, verse 2 says, Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Somebody have something besides serve. Yours said worship. Isn't that interesting? Yours says worship the Lord with gladness. Anybody else? The must do is all say Serve. But there are some that say worship. Yours says worship as well. Yours says worship. Yours says worship with joy. I, I, 
That, I've never heard worship with joy, but I like it. That's the net Bible. Very nice. Worship the Lord with joy. Go ahead. Yours says joyful singing. Mm. New American Standard. <laughs> That's Pentecostal. Hang on. Stick with me here. All right. Let's all go to Acts chapter 17. So here we've seen that the Bible says serve the Lord with gladness or worship the Lord with gladness or joy. Go to Acts chapter 17. And look at verses 24 and 25. In Acts chapter 17, verse 24, Paul speaking to the Areopagus there in Athens on Mars Hill. And he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Wait a minute, didn't my Bible say serve the Lord with gladness? Yet now my same Bible says that he's not served. What do some of your translations say? Do they say serve there? Yours says worship. Now, did yours say serve or worship the first time in Psalm 100 verse 2? You've already forgotten. Chances are it said serve. You're going to find, by the way, it's not like, well, one translation always uses serve and the other one always uses worship. You're going to find out they all switch. Because the word worship and the word serve are the exact same thing in the scriptures. We need to grasp this tonight before we go home. Somebody else? Does your say worship or does it say serve? He's not served by human hands. What does your say? Verse 25. Served. New King James says worshipped. The one that yours said worship the Lord with gladness. What does it say here? Isn't that interesting? Your translation said worship the Lord with gladness in Psalm 100 verse 2, but here it says serve. So isn't it interesting? It's not a translation issue. It's not because, well, this one translation always uses worship, and this translation always uses serve. We're blowing that one up, folks. The words are interchangeable. Yeah, I went through eight, eight translations here, just flipping real fast. Yep. They alternate. They alternate. Did you hear that? Glenn even helped us with technology. Technology agrees with me, guys. Let's stick with me. All right, let's keep going. Go to 12. Go to Romans chapter 12. Look at verse 1. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship, the ESV says. Some of you grew up King James, it says what? Reasonable service. What are some of your translations say? Mine says acceptable service, spiritual worship. 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 Spiritual service of worship. Woo, now we're getting somewhere. They put them both in there. Good. Listen to me. Worshiping God and serving God are the same thing. We got to get this. Because the church today doesn't understand this. And we're to worship the Lord with gladness. We're to serve the Lord with gladness. But he's not to be served or worshipped by our hands. We don't work for God. Go to Matthew chapter 6. Look at verse 24. Matthew chapter 6 verse 24. In Matthew chapter 6 verse 24, Jesus said, no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 
Now, I'm, I'm going to tell you what all your translations say. They all say serve. Has anybody got one that says worship? The message. So again, that's not a translation. That's a paraphrase. But it's okay, even if they did that, because it's the same word. But interestingly, all the translations that are translations, not paraphrases, use the word serve. I'm glad. Because this will help us. Because right now we're a little confused about this whole serve and worship thing. But Jesus says you can't serve both God and money. Either you hate one and love the other or you despise one and love the other. You can't serve both God and money. All right. Well, we don't understand how to serve or worship God yet. But let's talk about serving money. Do we serve money by worshiping money and saying, oh, money, 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 money. Do we have altars and shrines and candles to worship our money? No. How do you serve money you live your life in such a way that you totally depend on money to take care of you you may steal you may work hard you may you may just save it but when you live you don't say money i'm going to wash your socks or money i'll cut the grass for you you don't do things like that you serve money by totally trusting money to be your provision correct that's how you worship and serve god you totally trust him with everything. You don't move unless he's spoken. You don't act unless he's said. You don't worry because he's already promised that he'll take care of you. You don't set the parameters of the test. You just take him at his word and you trust him. And you worship God by trusting God with all your heart. That's how you serve the Lord with gladness. That's how you worship the Lord. Oh, he's not served by human hands if he needed anything. Too many of you have thought, well, I've worked hard all these years in the church for the Lord. I've served the Lord and nobody's helped me. No, you haven't served the Lord. You've been trying to do it for God. And that's not worshiping God. And biblically, it's not serving God. Oh, but if you've done what you've done for the Lord in full dependence on God, only because he told you to, not because you hope he'll come through or you hope he'll be pleased. Folks, let me tell you, when I preach and teach the word of God, I serve God, but I worship God. I'm worshiping God right now as I teach you this, his word. You know why? Because as I'm teaching, I'm listening and I'm relying on him and his power to do this. That's how I serve God. He's not served by anything I do. Does he need me? No. He can use donkeys. He can do whatever he wants. The rocks will cry out if he needs them to do that. He doesn't need me. But I want to be used by him. And so I worship him by not singing. That's one of the many ways you can worship, but it's, it's not singing. It's depending and trusting and relying on him. My, my pastor, my home church, said years ago, We've never learned how to worship. And so when we show up on Sunday, we're worship constipated. He said, you're, you get constipated because you can't do it, right? You know where I'm going with this, right? When you're constipated, you want to, but you can't. We don't worship God throughout the week. And so when we show up all having all week never gone, we show up on Sunday and we're constipated. You want to worship on Sunday morning? You need to learn how to worship him throughout the week. Throughout the day. Trust him. Rely on him. Know what he said and believe what he said. And do only what he said. 
That's worshiping God and that's serving God. So when Jesus said to Satan that we will worship the Lord your God and him only shall we serve, what he's saying is, um, that would be me relying on you to give me the kingdom. I don't trust in anyone but the Father. He's the one I worship. He's the only one I serve. Now, at the end in verse 11, when it was over, the devil came and, I'm sorry, the devil left him and the angels came and were ministering to him. If you were to go look at Luke's account of this, you'll see that Satan left him until a more opportune time. Satan's not done testing him and tempting him. But here's the question I have for you. I'm going to give you a little homework. I know I don't do this usually, but I'm going to. The reason is, I've wrestled with this and it's been kind of fun. How did the angels minister to Jesus? That's how we're going to start when we come back together. But again, I don't want you saying, well, I think they did this. Mm-mm-mm. What does the scripture say? I- I'll even give you a hint. Hebrews chapter, uh, I think it's chapter 1, says that angels are ministering servants sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. Even angels minister to us. Sometimes we're visited by angels unaware. The angels came and ministered to Jesus. I think this is going to be fun. Again, only from Scripture. No Scripture plus hypothesis. Only from Scripture. How did the angels minister to Jesus? If it's tied to, if you have a Scripture speculation, I will allow that. I, I will allow speculation if it's tied to Scripture. But it's got to be tied to Scripture, not... Well, the verse said this, and then you hear something out in left field. You know what I'm saying? If it's tied to Scripture, I'll allow speculation if it's tied to Scripture. Oh, I'll give you a little hint, and Warren helped you out. He made your homework a little easier. You're going to have to have a little bit of speculation. Let me give you a little more hint. You still have to do your homework, because I want you to show me what you found. Prove your work. You're not going to find a lot. But it's going to be fun digging. I love you. See you next week.